Popovich at East Carolina University. For every southern boy, 14 years old, not once but whenever he wants it, there is the instant when it's still not yet 2 o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863. Brigades are in position behind the rail fence. The guns are laid and ready in the woods. And the furled flags are already loosened to break out. And Pickett himself with his long oiled ringlets and his hat in one hand, probably in the sword in the other, looking up the hill, waiting for Longstreet to give the word, and it's all in the balance. William Faulkner wrote that about Pickett's charge. Everyone who knows anything about the Civil War knows Pickett's charge. Today we'll talk with Pickett's biographer, Leslie J. Gordon, on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. With me today is Leslie J. Gordon, history professor at University of Akron, and the author of General George E. Pickett in Life and Legend. Good morning, Leslie. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us today. It's uh uh, this particular Friday, there's no class in session on my campus, and I guess perhaps on yours. And we actually have classes today. Ah, uh, well, I see in the, uh, the the heathen north, perhaps, that is the difference. Uh, uh, where I grew up in the Midwest, uh, classes continue on every day, but here, here in the south, we don't have them today. Uh, and the result is I couldn't get into my building this morning, so I just got to the phone in time to get hold of you, and I'm glad we're finally joined together here. So... Tell us, uh, let's start at the beginning. What got you interested in writing about the Civil War in the first place? Well, uh, I think it was a number of things that came together when I was in high school. I had a very inspiring uh, 10th grade teacher who uh, just, especially her discussion of Gettysburg, caught my imagination. I started reading everything I could find about the Civil War, and I came across Killer Angels, which, of course, most everybody who's interested in the Civil War at some point has read or even seen the movie Gettysburg. And uh, so my fascination with Pickett came about the same time as my early interest in the Civil War. Well, that, and that's... it just went from there. 
Uh, last week on the show, we had uh, Jeff Shera, uh, the son of the author of Killer Angels, and we talked quite a bit about uh, his father's book. That really was an influential book. Uh, what do you think of it as uh, it, it inspired you at one point, now that you do history as a profession, what do you think of uh, historical fiction like Killer Angels? Yes, it, it's become a little more problematic for me. I've actually used it in my uh, large U.S. survey courses, hoping to sort of inspire my students the way it did me. But I do find it uh, not as satisfying today as I did, uh, gosh, how many years ago, uh, just because I think it, it does offer a rather simplistic view of the war and soldiers in general. But I, I, and I try to sort of prepare students for that, but inevitably they, they become so taken with the story, and it, it's a very romantic view of the war. Um, so I've, I've really grappled with that, enabling them to see the romantic side, the myth, and and also uh, sort of in, in enjoy the story behind it. Do you find that to be a professional hazard? Uh, I know I, I worked nine years in a museum, and I can't go to museums and enjoy them as I used to because I find myself looking at, at things with a professional eye and thinking I would do that exhibit differently or why, uh, what's going on here. Do you find now that uh, if you go to a movie uh, with a historical subject or read a historical novel, it, it, it's hard to just relax and enjoy it? Yes, and I, that's one of the reasons I really can't watch the History Channel very much. Um, it's true I don't read many historical novels anymore because I do find uh, that, I, yeah, it's hard to turn that side of your brain off. <laughs> it's not that you really want to. Um, and... I'd rather, if I am going to watch something historical, uh, or read something, in, in, in fact, I'd, I'd rather read about a time and a place I don't know anything about, <laughs> because I do find myself rather critical, uh, you know, to really kind of step back and, and find it as easy as entertainment. So it is, like you said, it's one of the hazards. It's also true, too, when I visit battlefields mm -hmm. uh, or, as you said, museums in general. It's a very different experience than it used to be when I was much younger and, and didn't uh, think of things the way I do now. It's it's uh, a loss in a sense, I, I guess. I, I hear what you're saying about going, reading about something in a remote era where uh, perhaps one doesn't know as much. Uh, I certainly find if I if I go with my family to a historical movie, it's a bad idea because I'm sure to be making ridiculous comments throughout about what I find unconvincing, and uh, nobody wants to sit next to me. That, exactly. I don't even try anymore. <laughs> well, let's. Get back to General Pickett then. So you read Killer Angels. You, you had uh, you got generally interested in the subject of Gettysburg, and you went on uh, to look at this. You're not alone in that. Pickett's Charge is, for many people, the, the, the seminal moment of the Civil War, the, the most representative uh, moment in the Faulkner piece I quoted. He, he narrows it down to the minute that represents the entire war for many people. How did it get that way? Well, that's a very good question, and in fact, uh, the same time I was working on my biography of Pickett, Cheryl Reardon was putting together, it was actually her MA thesis from South Carolina, her book on uh, the myth and the memory of, of Pickett's charge. So it was, it, we sort of came out, our books came out within a year of each other, and she actually explains in great detail exactly how this happened, that uh, for the soldiers that experienced the battle on both sides, certainly they knew they were in a huge traumatic uh, three-day uh, battle, 
but the importance given to the battle as a so-called turning point of the war and the high tide of the Confederacy, picket stars being high tide of the Confederacy, that all really didn't come together until, really I'd say, as the war progressed, and then, of course, in the post-war period, it was a deliberate sort of campaign put together by especially a group of Virginians who were also very active in the sort of lost cause movement in trying to recast the whole story of the Confederacy and make it into this heroic saga of of these larger-than-life figures like Lee and Jackson. And Gettysburg just seemed, in, because you had this unique situation with Pickett, because as many Civil War uh, buffs and enthusiasts know, the charge was not his plan. He really wasn't responsible for it. He shouldn't have been leading it uh, as, as a major general. Uh, his, the name, the fact that he became acquaint, uh, associated with it was, an, was rather an accident, too, or maybe a deliberate accident, because there were so many Virginians. His division was m- mostly Virginians, uh, the brigades in it, and uh, his division was sort of spearheaded the charge. And because of that, the Richmond newspapers took special interest in the charge and in the battle and began writing about it, and, and already right there in, in Again, the, the sort of days after the battle started to focus on Virginia's role, um, and then I said it just it just developed, and in retrospect became uh, this this sort of turning point. People like Faulkner played a role, and I argue in my book that Pickett's wife played a role. There were many people that had their own reasons for making Gettysburg what it became to be. I definitely want to talk in some detail about uh, Mrs. Pickett. Let me getting back to the charge itself. You point out. Pickett's division is is just one component unit. There are men from other divisions, and it's really Longstreet's charge in a in a right. larger sense. Is right. that not correct? Right, uh, and that of course that also has to do uh, the whole Longstreet question uh, added, I think, to the attention given not only to the charge but of course to the the battle. I mean, there's no question. This is a it's 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 in again it's it's a very dramatic battle because it did happen in northern in a northern state and it. It seemed to to certainly uh, mark some kind of change. I don't I don't necessarily agree that it was the turning point of the war, but certainly things changed. And and many people, of course, have been quick to point out the importance of Vicksburg happening nearly at the same time the fall of Vicksburg. But Longstreet, uh, he's such a controversial character too, and some of his uh, his whole reputation has to do with Gettysburg and what was he doing, what was he saying to Lee, and the fact that he. Question Lee's idea to do this charge. All that's played a role and uh, added to the uh, mythology. Longstreet, uh, certainly as portrayed in Killer Angels, is not uh, interested in a frontal attack on the Union position. And then in the the post-war era, you mentioned that the people who who espoused this lost cause ideology, uh, these are people like Early and Gordon that you're talking about. They... uh, they have no use for Longstreet. Uh, and, right. and tell us what's wrong with Longstreet. Well, one of the key things that happened, one of the main mistakes Longstreet made, was becoming a Republican, which was an unforgivable act to nearly any former Confederate. Uh, he became a Republican, so he essentially joined the enemy. He also just, he, you know, he, he was somebody who couldn't stop talking about the war and writing about it, and he did change a lot. Of you know his own version of things didn't quite match up with everybody else's, and he was extremely uh, concerned with with protecting himself. And, and and so I mean I think he's to blame somewhat as much as anybody who just 
began this sort of war of words that was reflected in newspapers and published accounts. And, and so he also was very open about his criticism of Lee. And so while these lost cause proponents were trying to create the myth and the uh, cult of Lee, Longstreet didn't fit into that because he was open, even though he and Lee, I think anybody would, would even, even the greatest Longstreet detractors would admit that Lee and Longstreet had actually a very close and, and overall pretty, uh, pretty good relationship, but that he criticized Lee, that he questioned Lee, and that was unforgivable too. Uh, so all this came together and, and he, and he just became the sort of, uh, you know, the, in some ways the villain of the Confederacy, but what's, Ironic is with with Shara's book, Shara really kind of brought Longstreet back and portrays him in a very different light than he had been. And I think that's much that, that has much to do with the fact that in recent years there's been this movement to to restore Longstreet to, to sort of uh, you know this 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 list of heroes from the Confederacy and the fact that he now has a monument at, at Gettysburg. That's right. That's some 130 years after the battle, they finally put a That's monument right. to him there. Although and it's a, a monument hard to find and very distinctly different than the others on the battlefield. But where is that monument? I, I, you know, it, I couldn't tell you offhand, but I know it's it, it's tucked away. I, I was there just one time, and it, it's tucked away. It's off the beaten path. It's it's surrounded by some trees, and it's very small. Hmm. Uh, so well, I'll guess uh, a large percentage of our listeners probably do know where it is. And right, next I'm sure there, I'll, I'll be sure and look it up. <laughs> so uh, Longstreet becomes disassociated from Pickett's charge. Right. Uh, doesn't get the credit for this valiant act. Uh, you point out that there's so there's political issues because Longstreet uh, goes over to the Republicans. Uh, there's there's the the cult issue that he criticizes Lee and Lee, who who of course dies five years after the war, is not there too. Uh, say anything good on Longstreet's behalf. Right. right. And then you have the uh, Virginia-North Carolina argument about who went further in the charge. Uh, It seems like minutia to us today, but but people took it quite seriously. Oh, extremely. I mean, I even today have spoken to groups in North Carolina and had people get very emotional about this issue of North Carolina troops at Pickett's Charge, and uh, it's alive. It's still alive. There is... There's a lot of it, it, I guess it's it's come to sort of embody or reflect other issues people are concerned with where they want to feel they had a place and a role in, in the war and, and in something as romantic as Pickett's Charge. Now, you mentioned another figure who plays a substantial role in the romanticization of Pickett's Charge is uh, Sally Pickett. Yes. Uh, what is her story? Well, you know, it's funny, I really had no interest in her at all, i got to be honest, when I first started this project. Uh, I wanted to do a traditional biography of, of Pickett, and quite frankly, being a woman, I, I thought I'd be taken less seriously if I did anything dealing with women. I, I didn't think that I would be, uh, like I said, taken seriously as a sort of military biographer. But I found I couldn't ignore her. I could not ignore her. She kept coming back into the story. She wrote a good bit about the war and about her husband after, so I had to deal with that. She met uh, George Pickett. It's hard to know for sure. She claimed she met him when she was very, very young, and they fell in love when she was a child and he was in his 20s. But um, my guess is that their romance really began during the war, and he married her soon after Gettysburg in September. And they were only married uh, when he died uh, in 1875, so they were only married about 12 years. 
but she lived a very long life. She lived until the 20th century, until 1931, and spent most of those uh, 50 years uh, writing and talking about her husband publicly. So uh, much of the myth, again, of Gettysburg and even Pickett is her doing. She published a volume of letters of their correspondence, uh, or supposedly their correspondence. Is that true? She did, and, yeah, it's been my guess, and I did my best to try to evaluate these letters, uh, not only in my biography, but also in a project I work with a uh, statistician. We actually did a run of looking at, at the words she used to compare them to actual documents that I know that Pickett authored. She, I, I think she fabricated the letters. Uh, she used some, I think, probably some kind of uh, basic uh yeah, I'm sure they were writing letters to each other, so I think she took something from him and then just elaborated and fabricated and presented this volume that, uh, again, promoted the, the mythic Pickett. So when when we read today the letters of, of Pickett and his wife, they need to be taken with a grain of salt as far as being Pickett's own words. Exactly. But they still have value as a source. Right, and one of the things I found with her is that you have to sort of reevaluate your sense of truth and historical fact that what she presents to you is a very truthful sense of their relationship, uh, that they were extremely in love and, and depended on one another. And So if you look at it from that point of view, uh, it's incredibly insightful. But it's not going to tell you much about the sort of you know real picket. It's not going to tell you even much about the actual war, but it's going to tell you a lot about the memory of the war and the post-war uh, imagery that people like uh, Sally Pickett wanted to promote. In terms of the raw material she had to work with, uh, with, with the story of Pickett's military career, besides Pickett's charge, it, it seems like it's a pretty thin uh, folder there. Uh, he, he commanded troops at Bermuda 100 near the end of the war, and he was involved in an ugly incident uh, just down the road from me here in uh, Kinston, North Carolina. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about those. About uh, about the Kinston incident or the Bermuda Hundred or uh, or both. Well, he, I, you're right. I mean, what what ends up happening to him is he he's sort of in a way demoted after Pickett's charge because he has no division left. It's so it's so destroyed by the charge that he he gets this departmental command which puts him uh, with headquarters at Petersburg, but he's responsible for a large section of eastern Virginia and eastern North Carolina. Um, at one point in uh, January of 64, he's ordered by Lee to try to retake uh, New Bern, North Carolina, on the coast there. And it's a, a complete failure. And it's very uh, classic ticket that he blames his subordinates and actually blames Lee for the whole fiasco. But in the aftermath of this attack on New Bern, there were some prisoners captured. Uh, and it turns out that these prisoners had actually served in the Confederate Army. And within a very short time, and Pickett seemed to play a very active role in this. These prisoners are, are tried by court-martial, uh, found guilty of, of treason and desertion, and hanged in Kinston in, a, in public hangings, two or three at its, uh, separate hangings, but sort of a mass hanging in the sense that you know, 10 or 12 would be hanged at the same time. And what's also very uh, tragic about this whole story is the, the wives and even some of the children of these men witness the hangings because the men were right from the community. Well, this is just the very opposite of the romantic view of the war that we, we often get. We're going to talk more about this 
with Professor Leslie J. Gordon in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 